Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're talking about collecting books and art associated with J.R.R. Tolkien, the author who gave us The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. My guest is Mark Faith, who runs Festival Art and Books, a bookselling firm located near McConcleth in Wales that has specialised in rare Tolkien books and fantasy art since 2001. Mark is one of the world's leading dealers in Tolkien rare books, and by his own admission, Mark works in a highly specialised area of bookselling, and today we're going to learn more about it. Welcome, Mark. Uh, Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thanks uh, so much for joining us. So um, my first question is an easy one. How did you become a bookseller? Well, it was a bit of an accident. Uh, I'd been a collector of Tolkien books for Ooh, more than 20 years and uh as a collector you 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 buy and sell books in order to upgrade to better copies and uh uh so in that process when the internet marketplaces started to come into to you know popularity it was much easier to find books and uh, i was talking to a neighbor who's an artist and i said to him uh, he said oh, i said you should sell your art online and uh he said, oh, well, thanks. And then I thought about it and I decided I should start an online bookshop. And uh, I I did so uh, somewhere around 2002. Uh, I started as Mark Faith Books, uh, which became Festival Art and Books when I started a festival called Festival in the Shire, a celebration of all things Tolkien inspired in 2010. Uh, it was a very, it was a big event. And uh, over the next few years, I would do a number of smaller local events, and the 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 festival in, included uh, Tolkien-inspired art, which then led me into selling original album art, and that was because a lot of fantasy famous fantasy artists actually started their careers as Tolkien-inspired artists. It must have been a very natural decision for you to specialize in Tolkien if if you were already an established collector. I was a huge fan. Um, I'm one of those people that that reads the Lord of the Rings series every couple of years, and uh, uh, I started off selling uh, my favorite authors, which tends to be fantasy and science fiction and, and classic children's books, but Tolkien was always my favorite. And I found, as I spoke to customers, uh, we 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 had both had a passion for it, so it wasn't like I had to sell at all. I just had to to talk about my interest and our mutual interest and passion and uh the good thing about tolkien is it's not as generational as some older authors um it seems like the the parent influences the child and the child becomes a collector or reader and so it just keeps ticking along every time i think it's slowing down it seems to pick up the films have helped a lot why is tolkien so popular perhaps not just with collectors but just in general, why is his writing such a phenomenon? Well, a lot of people have written some excellent books on that, uh, not only on the quality of his work, but the, the, the phenomenon of, of Tolkien. Uh, but I'll give you my own personal opinion, which is sort of a mixture of history and so forth. So it, it, it's a it's a long explanation, but I think it hopefully your Go listeners ahead. will want to hear it. The um, 
he's popular because he created his own genre of literature, which is called high fantasy. And it still seems to appeal to fans at some deeper human level. It was also his timing of, of when he released his, his, his works. Uh, the background is that uh, heroic fantasy, which is swords uh, and sorcery Conan style fantasy was around much earlier. In fact, that style of, of uh, heroic storytelling has been around before books were even published. The, the, the earmark of heroic fantasy is that it's low technology. It's got a bit of magic in it, but the themes are very basic, very basic human themes. And it appeals to uh, our human need to have heroes who fight for injustice or fight against monsters and dragons. Uh, up in the 1950s, after the World War II, we, we had the start of the Cold War. And that's when science fiction fantasy became popular uh, because people feared this superpower technology. It was considered so because the space race was also uh, just beginning. So science fiction, uh, which is slightly different from fantasy, comprises purely imaginary worlds and future imaginary futuristic worlds and technologies, um, as well as superhuman beings or alien beings. Uh, the, the young writers of the day got their opportunity to, to be published in pulp magazines, uh, which was technically re recycled paper. Uh, paperbacks were emerging, but pulp magazines were usually small publishers and they were willing to take chances on, on, new, on new writers. Um, the, the iconic science fictions today all got their start writing short stories for these pulp publishers, uh, being paid a penny a word or two pennies a word. And the, the, the pulp publishers went on to become major publishers because of the, the popularity of science fiction. The, the, the quality of the writing of science fiction at the time wasn't considered to be as high a standard as mainstream literature, but that really wasn't true. What it really came down to is big publishers didn't want to take the risk with science fiction. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I think the, the Isaac Asimov, the, the Clarks, the, those people were just as good of writers as, as anything else at the time. There was also an element of young writers wanting to uh, be rebellious and create their own brand of literature and something completely different from their parents and grandparents' times. Science fiction, going along with what was happening in the world at that time, uh, had uh, futuristic technologies and themes, uh, futuristic technologies that could actually solve humanity's problems. And that was in the backdrop of world wars and cold wars and changes in ideology. There were some children's stories like Tolkien's Hobbit, which crossed into the adult literature world, but writing children's stories at that time was, it wasn't as posh and sophisticated. And Tolkien was an Oxford professor, so he didn't really tell anybody he was writing The Hobbit or that he was creating this imaginary world. Uh, he did, however, meet up with his friends at the pub in the evenings, uh, 
a group he called the called the Inklings, the of Inklings, which yeah, of which C.S. Lewis was one of them, and they would get together and they would encourage each other's writing, and uh, C.S. Lewis, um, his his Narnia series was really books for children, and mostly comprising religious allegory, which is a little different than Tolkien's high fantasy, but come back to what was happening in the sort of uh, culture of the day, you know, pulp science fiction became the enabler for a new market of high fantasy, which was considered to be more sophisticated uh, on a literary level. Uh, some of the science fiction writers of the day definitely crossed into high fantasy, at least as, as far as, you know, high quality writing. Uh, that what, what marks high fantasy and Tolkien's work um, is that it it doesn't follow the same rational principles of our world. It's set in a different world, which upholds basic values and traditions. While moralistic, Tolkien's works were not religious allegory, as some people incorrectly feel. It was really a, a code of better human conduct amid a, a then troubled world, writers that uh, writers of a generation that grew up in turbulent times of world wars and, and political ideology. Most writers write about what they know and see. So commercially at the time, fantasy and science fiction was considered escapism, escapism for dreamers and not mainstream uh, book publishing literature. First thing you said there was about the need for a hero, which yes. Tolkien does, right? So I'm immediately thinking of... Arthurian legend, I'm thinking of Beowulf, I'm thinking of Norse mythology, the Iliad, all of these ones, these pre-books, stories, legends, where there were heroes, flawed heroes. Um, that's right. Laying but that's, the groundwork for Tolkien, perhaps. Yes, because heroic fantasy is a difference between high fantasy and heroic fantasy, and that is that heroic fantasy uh, is, for lack of a better word, bashing each other over the head with a with a club, uh, and and the heroes whose whose basic motivations uh, are uh, to to again to fight monsters or to to look at to try to win over the the, the person of their dreams, but high fantasy is really a more, it's a different literary pursuit. And I was trying to explain there that, that high fantasy is more moralistic, more, uh, it's trying to tell a, a deeper, more meaningful story, but it isn't trying to be the same as, as heroic fantasy. Right, um, does it require a mythical world? I think it does because High fantasy is high fantasy is about values and and traditions that uh, that actually don't apply to our world. Our world is practical. Our world is is you know we have to follow the rules. The nice thing about high fantasy is you can you can create a, a system of values and traditions that people can aim to live for. But unfortunately, they don't apply to the real world. So there's a lot of romanticism in high fantasy and less so in, say, heroic fantasy. And that romanticism of of, of being better people and in, 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 a, in a better world. 
Um, so in order to, to convey that, I think Tolkien had to create his own world, his own characters, its own history. High fantasy might be called high moral fantasy or, or idealistic uh, fantasy. Um, and it was, it was happening, it was being created because of what was happening in, in, in Tolkien's world. He, he most certainly started Middle Earth in the trenches of World War I. Um, he, some people, he, he, he claimed he wasn't writing about the war, but in fact, that so much of it is in there, it, it must have been his key influence. The, but coming back to whether it was commercial, I don't think Tolkien was necessarily writing for a commercial market, even though that opportunity was there, uh, thanks to science fiction. And I think he was writing something that had an academic uh, basis for him. Uh, it had a, uh, it was of interest to him. He was interested in languages, history of languages. He was interested in folklore and uh, the, the history of, of various uh, stories, but there wasn't a commercial opportunity for it until science fiction created a market of what I would call nerds and geeks, who of course now rule the world. The- but Didn't, that, didn't that, the, the first edition print run of The Hobbit sell out exceptionally quickly? It did, but that's only 1500 copies. Right, so, so that didn't necessarily indicate that it was a, gonna be a best yeah, phenomenon just yet. 15, 1500 copies every couple of years is not a bestseller. Uh, right. I'll, I'm, I'm coming to that later. So it, it was. Uh, you have to understand that, of course, the publishers were were publishing how success, you know, were telling people how successful it was because they wanted to sell more books. But the fact is, between 1937 and 1954, when Lord of the Rings came out, maybe they sold 15,000 copies. That's still not a best-selling book, even in that day. Right. Um, the what changed it also for was going on at the same time that Tolkien was creating this new literature and there was a new market being developed uh, in, in, in cheap fiction, as it were, because um, paperback books were just coming onto the market. But what happened with Tolkien was that the American hippie, uh, a liberal counterculture movement, really identified with Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, its characters and its themes. And, and that spread that started on college campuses and it spread to sort of young people, uh, somewhat disenfranchised. And um, their identity uh, at this time, in combination with what Tolkien was writing for himself, created this phenomenon of, uh, of high fantasy that to this day still exists. Uh, high fantasy or fantasy today is so much part of our mainstream culture and society it's hard to believe that that it was somewhat poo-pooed even 30 years ago it was uh, some people say well I, I would never read about dragons and that sort of thing um, i think what appealed most to early tolkien fans the hippies and 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 then liberals rebelling against a more conservative society was that Lord of the Rings was a story of hope in a perceived hopeless world. And Tolkien's characters lived on the edge of chaos where humanity was at the mercy of monstrous evil and constantly threatened with extinction, a bit like the science fiction themes. Um, and I think Tolkien uh, 
though he was potentially writing about a, his own experiences, he really, uh, as a creative person, I don't think he was trying to to sell anything, or I don't think he had an agenda. He wasn't trying to teach us anything or or try to influence anybody. He was he he had his emotional reasons for writing it, but then it became a a project of of creatism, and he 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 just had to get it out, and it came out in in the five books. It's Lord of the Rings. Right. Uh, so you, you you talk about the hippies, and I'm presuming yeah. you're talking about the '60s there. That's I mean, right, the books yeah. were had were were written, but there must have been some sort of change from how they were marketed and how publishers were thinking that they actually had something huge on their hands at the time. It was actually technology that changed. Um, print technology uh, in the early 1960s uh, made printing generally less a lot less expensive. Um, the lithograph printing. The but what really changed was the paperback availability, and uh, we were going to come to that a little later. But 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 paperbacks was was a new mechanism to reach wider audiences. So Tolkien first editions are uh, expensive items these days. Um, for most of us, how how would it be possible to collect Tolkien without breaking the bank? Well, unfortunately, I think you, because of the, the prices, I think you have to own a bank. Um, they're now so rare that, uh, especially with, with fine dust jackets, that most collectors of, of average means probably won't be able to own, own one. Um, one of the problems is that Tolkien collectors of over the decades, uh, they've kept their treasures they don't they don't want to sell them and a lot of them are now handing them down to their to their children so there's uh, uh there's not a lot of books coming on the market and uh there was few books printed to begin with again at 1500 a year you know, you know may uh, there's simply not enough available books from the early printings that they're going to suddenly come out of grandmother's attic or in a charity shop that was the case for maybe 20 years ago, but it isn't now. One of the qualifiers as to whether it's valuable and, and thus expensive to, to buy is whether or not it's in fine condition. Now, I had a call from a from a charity saying uh, about a month ago saying, oh, someone has handed in a first edition set of Lord of the Rings, and we've read it's worth 20,000 pounds. And I said, well, tell me more about it and let me see some photos. Unfortunately, the dust jackets were in tatters and pieces. The books were stained. They had literally had coffee mug stains on the covers. And oh, I had dear. to tell them, I had to tell them they're only worth a couple hundred pounds. It's really these, these, cat, these, these, uh, these prices in the stratosphere are really only for fine condition. So the first way that you can start to collect earlier Tolkien is, is to accept you're going to have to buy some some more worn out damaged copies um now there's 16 different printings of the first edition lord of the rings and as each subsequent year went on the print runs became bigger the first the first first there's only 1500 copies of each book actually 3000 of return of the king but by the 60s they were printing many thousands so there's far more uh, available later printings and in, and at that same time people were starting to look after them one of the problems with uh, Lord of the Rings sets in the 50s is they weren't famous. They weren't 
no one knew they were going to be popular. So they did use them as drinks mats. By the middle of the 60s, everybody knew now that they were going to be popular and they kept them and they looked after them. So you can buy a later printing first edition or a second edition of Lord of the Rings uh, and then sell it and then upgrade to an earlier edition. And that's probably the best way to fund acquiring as close to a first edition as you can. I, I help a lot of customers do that over over the 10 or 15 years as their careers increase and, and as the prices of books increase, they can sell their older copies and, and upgrade their earlier bought copies and upgrade to older copies. So it's a, it's a process. And I think a lot of collecting markets are like that. Um, the, the, the other thing about um, Tolkien collecting is we're just talking now about first editions, but they've never been out of print. So there are dozens of, of new editions, dozens of artists, dozens of languages. So you can start off at any economic, uh, any budget level you want, and uh, and you can join the fun, as it were. So so yes, it's really the first editions that are that remain out of reach. Right. So I, I could look for say interesting illustrated editions or interesting reprints. Absolutely, there are there are some books. Um, that even five years ago, you could get for a few hundred that have climbed to a thousand or more. And but what that means is that if you sell it, there's your funding to buy your earlier editions. So you kind of have to be a, a bit of a wheeler dealer, even as a personal collector, in order to fund a better collection. Uh, but absolutely, there are uh, some lots of collectible copies done by various uh, famous fantasy artists over the decades. Uh, a lot again a lot of the fans, famous uh, fantasy artists started to do album covers so they were but they started as as Tolkien fans and they introduced their fantasy style of art to book covers and in particular Lord of the Rings so you can collect different uh, art you can collect uh, different bindings there's deluxe versions there's paperback versions so I somebody told me they, they Somebody said in a basic collection, it's about 200 books, uh, but you can go to 2,000 books. So there is something for everybody in Tolkien and for every budget. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's jump forward in time a little and ask about um, the movies, the Peter Jackson movies. What, what influence did they have on um, uh, Tolkien, the genre, and uh, I guess on collecting Tolkien too? A lot, when we first, we meaning us Tolkien fans in the late 90s, when we first heard about the films, I think we we're all prepared to uh, to boycott them. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because there's book people and then there's film people. And, you know, we um, don't go, we don't go to the same establishments, but, but the idea of turning our beloved uh, book into a film just felt wrong. Um, and I remember, um, I remember that the Fellowship of the Ring, uh, sorry, the uh, yeah, the Fellowship of the Ring was being uh, coming out in the movie theaters in 2001, and I wasn't going to go to it. Uh, then I did, and I was just overwhelmed. I thought that uh, Peter Jackson um, did a fabulous job. Importantly, he stuck to the original, mostly the original book. So. I think that the first set of films um, revived Tolkien. There's no doubt that, that that Tolkien collecting and fandom had 
uh, was run, was had hit a low in the 90s, and the timing of of the Peter Jackson films was a bit like a sponge to starve to to water people. It it just brought out all the old fans, but. To, to do the films in such a quality way, one of the things it did, it also cre uh, created a lot of new readers, uh, people who maybe heard about them, but they hadn't read them. And so they watched the films and they read the book and then they became Tolkien fans and then they became collectors. So uh, that's a, a huge turning point because that's when I started my business. Uh, and, you know, I, honestly, uh, demand and prices have not slowed down at all. And so now I, I believe is uh, uh, something coming from Amazon now as well. Um, so we could go through another mini revival, I guess. Yes, um, although it's I'll have to qualify it. Um, you have to wait I, and I see think, it, I guess. Well, well that's it. it, it it's going to depend on how popular it is and also how how true it is to Tolkien. Uh, at Tolkien's works. Now, it'll you know certainly put Tolkien and and back into the, the spotlight, and uh, there'll be a new generation of fans, with, which is now both book and film uh, fans, and that's important because the film fans who maybe weren't book fans prior to the Jackson films uh, will be quite critical, uh, potentially of, of of the series, and. Uh, they're, they're going to wonder, is, is it going to be as good as that, those first films, and is it going to be true to Tolkien? I do hope that they stick to the, ma the material and don't introduce uh, new, uh, uh, don't introduce too much as far as modern themes and values. Tolkien's, the beauty of Tolkien's writing is it's universal themes and values. If they try to bring it into the modern age, I think they're going to lose people. Um, but they'd also lose not only the Tolkien book fans, they'll lose the Tolkien film fans. And I think that's going to be key to the success. Right. And again, if you go back to one of your first points about folklore and how important it was to Tolkien, I mean, a dragon in the mountains is folklore. Uh, trolls are folklore. Typically, yes. A great, great example, aren't they? Um, and something mysterious in the woods. Again, this is like classic tales have been told again and again and again for centuries so i think some of the parts there are really traditional oh they are but the quality of writing and detail is is just phenomenal compared to anything today um i mean i i find it difficult to read lord of the rings i find it difficult to read zimmery and and I, i'm not a i'm an average fellow but it it's just very hard to digest and hard to keep track of, especially all the names, you know, that none of the names roll off the tongue, uh, none of the place names do. So it's a hard read. And if you're gonna introduce that into film and keep to a story that's interesting, it, it, it's gonna be a challenge for the, the, the people watching it and the people writing it. But yes, if they don't, the trouble is we were all hoping that they don't dumb it down. And that is a danger. Uh, that it gets dumbed down. Um, we shall see. We shall see. We shall see. So anyway, yeah. if I think if they can, if they can respect and 
and use Tolkien's phenomenal writing, they'll have a, it'll be bigger than Lord of the Rings. Right. So let's go back to your your, your book selling activities. Um, can you tell us about some of the items that you've handled that are related to Tolkien? I don't know books, letters, memorabilia, art. What, what's what's been exciting? What what are the exciting items you've handled? I I was very lucky in the two thousands to uh, to be working with a uh, a gentleman who started his own Tolkien museum. Uh, and in Switzerland, and in fact, I co-founded it with him, and he was in the position to buy anything he wanted. So I was actually out there buying um, most of the stuff, changing hands in the Tolkien market was coming through me to him. And this is artworks, manuscripts, uh, letters, film memorabilia, film collectibles. Um, so it was all great fun. But I, I think the there are two things that that stuck with me, and that is one, the letters, the handwritten letters, of which we get insight into Tolkien's uh, thinking behind uh, Middle Earth. But also we get insight into his personal life. There's a lot, there's some books, there's one biography on Tolkien that was authorized. There's dozens of books about Tolkien, but he was really a private man. He didn't tell anybody a lot of what we would like to know. So much of what we know about Tolkien is what author, modern authors have surmised. The letters give you a chance to to actually hear it firsthand from Tolkien himself. So you know, one of the books that people should read is the Letters of Tolkien, which ha, which are published in uh, 1980, and uh, that will give you great insight into the man behind the story. Um, so. And the personal letters, not all of them are in that book, but the personal letters are uh, very sentimental if you're a Tolkien fan, some of them talking about his personal life. Uh, but I think the most important uh, piece uh, that I'm handling, because actually it's for sale now, is the uh, uh, the Barbara Remington uh, artwork uh, for the 1965 paperback editions of Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. and uh, that's part of the story that I've, I've told in, in the listing, but, but I'll, I'll share it with you now. The, again, coming back to the fact that, that Tolkien, that hardback books uh, were very expensive in the day. And to give you an example, so this will require an explanation. A set of, of Lord of the Rings, 1954-55 uh, first printings would have cost 63 shillings. And that is about 84 pounds in, in the pound of the day. The average person earned 39 pounds a month take-home pay. And that meant that to, to buy a set of Lord of the Rings, it took two months' pay to do so. So, you know, it's simply impossible that Tolkien's books were bestsellers in the day. They weren't even, they couldn't reach most people. And even today, the first edition of Lord of the Rings can't be it's too expensive for most people. So what put Tolkien on the map is the paperback books, in particular, the Ballantine paperback books. And they were produced um, in response to an illegal set of books from Ace Paperbacks, um, who produced in 1965 uh, a, a set of the... Uh, Lord of the Rings, and Tolkien uh, demanded from his publisher then Ballantine, in America, Ballantine Books, to uh, 
to produce an authorized set. So it was the Ballantine books of 1965, combined with the fact that they were affordable, uh, that reached the hippie market, that put Tolkien on the map. And when I say put him on the map, he went from publishing 1,500 books and 2,000 books a year to 500,000 paperbacks a year. And by 1968, uh, the Ballantine paperback books were sell, uh, had sold 3 million copies. Now we're talking about real change in history. So it was good writing, but the fact is until it became popular in America, um, it didn't really exist. Uh, and we owe those Ballantine paperbacks uh, for uh, to, to bring to make available to the public Tolkien's writing. But prior to that, the public would have never found out. Right. So part a paperback, you can you can uh, it's light, it's easy to carry, and you can pop it into your well, backpack as you're hitchhiking well, down the highway. It, it was cheap too. I mean, in America, they were twenty-five cents new, right. fifty cents. Uh, and then if you, most people read them and even threw them away. So you could get secondhand paperbacks in my day for about five cents or 10 cents. So understanding that now Tolkien's Lord of the Rings was available to people for 10 cents <laughs> as opposed to two months pay, that, yeah. is a, that is what changed the world and made Tolkien a phenomenon. And part yeah. of that is the, is the artwork, uh, uh, Barbara Remington artwork on the covers of the of the four books um and the the story is quite interesting uh, barbara remington was given a one paragraph synopsis she never read the books uh from betty ballantyne and and she just came up with this this artwork i don't know if you've seen it um half it's a triptych and and it bears no resemblance to Tolkien. In fact, on The Hobbit, there's a lion in it because she confused him with C.S. Lewis. Tolkien was furious. He, 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 he was really scathing of that artwork. But when it started to make him a millionaire, I think he changed his view. <laughs> yes. Anyway, what I have, and I got it directly from Betty Ballantyne, uh, is, was the original concept piece that, that uh, Barbara sent Betty. And, and it's it's got the trees and the it's in black and white or gauche black and white gauche and it's it, it's got the, the the fundamental outline of it and Betty approved it and then they produced a color version which was a triptych and that was on the cover of the books and it was also on promotional posters and all around America and so um, so that so the the final artwork sold uh, I believe about thirty years ago for about thirty thousand uh, pounds dollars so this artwork though was in uh, Betty Ballantyne's house until I acquired it. And sadly, it was because she was losing her sight and she was selling um, all her artwork. And uh, I got the ch chance to speak to her about it. Uh, and uh, she produced a letter of authenticity for me. But uh, she said herself that it was it was in a place of honor in her home because it was really what put Ballantyne books on the uh, on the world map as well, the the, the Tolkien right. edition. Okay. So, so in terms of its impact on history, this piece of art uh, is unmatched. I, I hope it ends up in a museum, uh, and uh, and that people learn the story. It's kind of sad, and uh, it and that is, for some reason, the British have been very inventive, creative, creative people over the decades, but for some reason. 
it takes the American market to bring it to the commercial fruition. There's been so many things invented about TV, uh, commercial airline, jet airlines, uh, the internet, but they never seem to be able to, to benefit from their own creative genius. Uh, and once again, even in Tolkien, that applies. You know, if it wasn't for the, the paperback books reaching the American market, and then eventually the world market, we may not know about Tolkien today. Right. So you're you're located in Wales. I'm wondering if you've retraced some of Tolkien's steps and seen uh, Oxford or Birmingham or the other places that were important to his in his life. Ah, uh, well, it, this is the most important. Oxford was yeah, he was a professor in Liverpool, and he ended up in Oxford later. Uh, but it, Birmingham, of course, was the where he grew up as a child, and those. Uh, places uh, or influence as far as uh, things in his books. But he, him and his brother did take a, a train journey uh, from Birmingham to here in Mahuncliffe and eventually to a local town called Aberystwyth out by the sea. And it was on that train journey that he, he looked out the window and he saw the Welsh language place names and he, he wanted to know what this was. And um, he did some research and he found out that there wasn't a Welsh primer at the time that, that you know, in other words, a, a guide to how Welsh should be grammatically produced and spoken. So he, he, that's what got him interested in the Welsh language. Um, and that got him interested in languages. And some say that's why he created his writings was to put the language, uh, philology into a context of a real place. So, um, one of the things that we see in Tolkien is, a, is he's borrowed on a lot of uh, Celtic, uh, Norse folklore. So where I live, there's a, the actual setting of, a, where, of, some of the, where the origins of some of these uh, places. And uh, so I think it was inevitable I was going to end up here in rural Wales. Right. So yeah, when I noticed you were in McConcliffe, I thought that's almost the most perfect place for a dealer in high fantasy um because mccunkleth is such a well i remember going there in the 70s when um the, i think it was is it the center for alternative technology i can't remember the name of the place but it was that's it yeah Cat it was Center, full yeah. of hippies it, full it, of hippies it, it it still is is it, it? Still is. i call it the place of of has-beens and wannabes and and uh aspiring artists yeah, uh, absolutely Mahuncliffe is uh, uh is on still the same size there's there's no new housing estates it is changing now but yes it's uh yeah uh it has a reputation and further south there's actually uh where i held my festival was a venue um where uh sc4 television used to hold hippie uh music uh events and uh, so, so Wales, Mid Wales, parts of North Wales had its own hippie movement, um, and I don't. Tolkien would not have approved, but but he was influenced by the Welsh language and the landscape, uh, as well as other places that he later visited in his life. So there's there's very much a connection between Wales right. and, and Tolkien. Have you gone to Oxford and drunk in the Eagle and Child? Absolutely, I I go there, oh, twice a year, once a year. Uh, sadly, Eagle and Child almost closed over COVID uh, because oh. the business had died off. And uh, 
but uh, a bunch of private owners bought it. But uh, yes, I go to Oxford. I go down to uh, to Worcester, Gloucester, where the woods, places like that. So there's a lot of physical places you can visit. Uh, also, right. um, he was probably influenced by his trip to Switzerland. Um, right. Uh, so we that's that's probably a great influence but yes i i, I feel it is a, a great place to be a tolkien dealer although it's hard to reach me and get to me sometimes <laughs> all right okay mark one more question which is uh one we asked to all our guests and that is what book or books are you currently reading well uh i am rereading Cimmerian and history of middle and, and uh unfinished tales but but I'm also reading Larry Nevin, uh, Larry Niven's uh, Ringworld, and it, it's a it's four four books, uh, and I read it for the same reason I read Tolkien, and that is it's it's full of tremendous detail, scientific detail, but it, it's a uh, it's a set of characters, some human, some not, uh, who go on this adventure to a place called Ringworld. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, yeah, we shall sell lots of copies of those books. Yes, and uh, so at the moment I'm rereading that, uh, and uh, I'm not I'm not reading anything new because um, I haven't really been inspired. Uh, but maybe I'm just getting old. Maybe it's okay to go keep going back to the old stuff. Well, I do think that a, there's a lot of things that are derivative, sadly, um, in books and art. Um, so. Uh, it's hard to find something that's that's that isn't uh, been done in some form or another. I, I, Game of Thrones, the books were were excellent. Uh, I think the Harry Potter books were excellent, although you could have skipped the middle five. But uh, uh, but in terms of new fantasy books, uh, they deserve all the the credit they they've gotten and been turned into films, etc. They, they're absolutely fine literature. Yeah, my kids read a lot of, well, I don't think they know it's fantasy. They just read it because it's what everyone else is reading. But they, they read things like Shadow and Bone and love it. Well, see, that's the, that is the interesting thing. Just in the time I've been involved in Tolkien books and collectibles, the world has changed. When I started 20 years ago, if you if I my wife didn't tell anybody that I sold Tolkien because you know she's oh he's a book dealer because I there was there would conjure up images that I had pointy ears and furry feet or something it, it just, <laughs> and even even today some of my best customers some of which are famous uh, and the rule is I can't tell anybody that they bought a Tolkien book. <laughs> Yet, you know, so it's kind of like a secret society that that some important famous person has got a public image, but secretly he's reading Lord of the Rings or she's reading Lord of the Rings. Right. Uh, there's, some, there's something special about that. <laughs> uh, there's, so, but, there's no shame in that. I think there's probably more written today about Tolkien than there is about Hemingway. I think it's probably true. But I think also is that, as you say, the younger people, because it's been, you know, it, it, it it's been disseminated throughout our society they don't realize that fantasy isn't is, is not necessarily real <laughs> uh and, and if we see it in our tv and our films and our 
and and now also the way that they use animation in product advertising and things like that it's 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 now mainstream we're just just a decade two ago uh, people weren't really really willing to to tell you what they were reading they would never tell you they were reading lord of the rings but uh, so it's kind of nice to be part of a uh, of a true phenomenon uh and i I, I, as I say, I, I think it's terrific that Amazon is, is doing a series and they have a huge responsibility to, to get it right uh, because, you know, I'd like to see Tolkien be carried on for another 10 generations. I think there's a good chance it will be. Right. I think it will. Mm. All right. Uh, that's all we have time for today. I, I want to say a big thank you to Mark Faith, who runs Festival Art and Books, for joining us today. Thank you so much, Richard, for the opportunity to share my story. It's uh, uh, You'll have to shut me up next time. <laughs> no, it's super interesting. You can find Mark's inventory on Aid Books under the Festival Art and Bookseller account. Uh, my name is Richard Davis, and you've been listening to an Aid Books podcast, and we'll see you all again soon. <laughs>